stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guests are Lainey Zumas and Luca Di Piero. Lainey Zumas is a professor of creative writing in the MFA program at Portland State University and the author of the short story collection Farewell Navigator from Open City and the novel The Listeners from Tin House Books, a finalist for the 2013 Oregon Book Award. Luca Di Piero is an animator and illustrator. His work appears regularly on record and book covers and in animated films, both here in the U.S. and Europe. And he's the author of the art zine Das Ding and the book of fiction's Biscotti Neri. They're here today on Between the Covers as co-creators of A Wooden Leg, an illustrated novel in 64 cards, one that allows, encourages, and challenges the reader to arrange the text and images into any number of possible narratives. Welcome to Between the Covers, Lainey Zumas and Luca DiPiero. Thanks. Thank we're, you. We're glad to be here. So l- let's start with the genesis as co-creators of this. What was the the original idea or impulse that um, made you want to create a wooden leg together? I wouldn't like didn't start as a as the project that we have now. At first, it was just a series of drawings that I, would ma- I was making at the time, and they were sort of like very quick drawings. It's uh, my, my work is generally takes a long a longer time, but for some reason I didn't have much time. I, you know, in that moment. So I started to do these very skeletal drawings, like just pencil, very almost like um, the, the most minimal I could go. And then I noticed that there were things that these drawings had in common. So after that, the concept kicked in. So I, I thought, oh, maybe we could do something that's, you know, it's, uh, has, a, has a different length. So I asked Lenny if she wanted to write captions. I always, I'm always be interested in, in a connection between text and image that is not necessarily comics, but it's more like static illustration and caption and that comes i think from from children's books like you know illustrated classics where you know you have you know the last of the mohicans or uh tom sawyer or whatever and you know every now and then there's an illustration a full page in color and there's a, a, a line from the from the book under the illustration and that for me has always been very fascinating it's almost like as if the book is being decontextualized in that moment and and somehow you finally see how the characters look like, and it's never how you imagine them. So it's it's in a way it's 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 very strange. I I always thought that was a very strange moment in which images break the text. So uh, the idea was to do something very radical to to make a novel only of images and captions. So to basically take the novel away and to leave only the captions, and um, many people would would say, well, this is not a novel, and what, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I think it's, well, maybe it's not, but I think f- since, since the beginning, since 
you know, novels has always tried to be what what they were not. In a way, I feel like, say, to talk about novels, it's it's a little bit tricky because what is a novel? And you, you cannot really define it. And I think it's always good to push the boundaries of what a novel is. And that has happened since, you know, if you think about, you know, even like Stendhal, for example, you know, Stendhal is regards the classic novel. Well, not, not really. If you, if you read his books, they're very digressive. He doesn't follow any plot. It's very, it's very, and that was, you know, 19th century. So I think uh, that the idea was sort of a little provocative, but also, but also, I think we kind of take it seriously. And, and there's also the element of combinatory uh, novel, which, you know, it's not new, obviously. Like, think about Calvino, uh, the cast of Cross Destinies, which is a series of, you know, tarot cards who put in different orders, build different stories. And um, I think it's, you know, encouraging people to play. It's always it's always fun. Uh, but... Uh, I have to confess, we haven't done it ourselves. We have not tried to build actually a narrative out of these cards. I think it's possible, but it's a very loose narrative. It's not you, know, you don't expect you know characters that come back. It's more a novel in the sense of all images and all captions share the same mood. And I think a novel can be as well about mood and and uh, emotional sort of like temperature than. And uh, that, rather than just plot and things that happen, so uh, and, and I don't I, know. I may I may have talked about too many things at once, but that's sort of what crossed my mind, you know. And and we also are interested in playing on the active participation of the reader and our natural inclination to reach for story and to make story, even if there's only traces of incident or traces of connection among in different incidents. Um, so. We our hope is that people will read these cards. So there's 64 cards with images on the front and little bits of text on the back and reading them in whatever order you receive the cards in, shuffling the cards, spreading them out on the floor, which apparently some readers have done and we've been thrilled to hear that. Um, there Things are firing in each individual's brain who will read these and, and that to me is the exciting part. It's not even so much the the cards themselves but the potential in the cards and of course that gets back to things like Calvino's Castle of Cross Destinies and other Ulipian creations where the the excitement lies in what it might be and and what it, it what it promises to be rather than a, a set understanding of what it is well, I think the mention of Castle of Cross Destinies is, an, is a nice one because it is that fusion of image and text and telling the story through images at, in a book that is mostly text. But from the literary tradition, Lainey, uh, when, when you think about uh, the, the endeavor of doing uh, combination where the, the uh, reader can choose uh, the reordering or the ordering of the text, you think of like Hopscotch by mm-hmm. Cortazar, Cortazar or yeah. even the Raymond Cano, I think it's 100 million billion poems. Mm-hmm. Um, can you contextualize for our listeners that endeavor, the hi- a little bit of the history? You mentioned Ulipo. Maybe some people don't know what Olympian mm-hmm. texts are, but also how would, you, how would you place a wooden leg in that tradition for people who are used to a linear, uh, more uh, uh, immersive... Directed reading, perhaps, right. of this is the order in which you will read these pages. Well, so Ulipo stands for... I'm going to butcher the French pronunciation, ouvrage de littérature potentielle, um, which was a kind of 
movement started around 1960 in France and included mostly French writers, but some Italian and American and um, other writers and artists who were interested in um, play and uh, the challenge of not of, of randomness per se, but of constraint and experiment and intentional restriction on writing. And so an example could be as, you know, Calvino taking tarot cards as the restriction for his narrative choices and, and saying, rather than write about anything, I'm going to adhere to what these images are, you know, the, the kinds of stories that these images themselves are putting together. And, um, and so Ulipians were very interested in mathematics and, and kind of co- what happens when things combine in certain ways, or you have an algorithm or a, a, a sort of equation that something has to follow rather than another approach to narrative, which m- most of us are a lot more familiar with is the, um, the arc, the Freitag's pyramid that follows, there's some characters and they have a problem and that problem gets worse and worse until there's some kind of, uh, apex of conflict, some, some kind of crisis, and then it's resolved. Right. And, and we can find that in, in stories from the last several hundred years. But, um, one of the things I I think contextually that this work falls under could also be, uh, interest, which is more recent than 1960, but in hypertext, um, there was a lot of work in the eighties and nineties done, um, with computers and imaginative writing, kind of a, more highfalutin choose your own adventure, the sense that using hyperlinks and, you know, actually the way the internet works, which is we're reading a narrative and then embedded in that narrative is some kind of uh, clue or link. And we click on that and we go to another narrative. That's what we all do every day. But the sort of hope of hypertext is that we could read our literature that way. And um, I don't think it took off in the kind of mainstream uh, consciousness in the in the way that people were hoping it would, but I I do I mean I studied actually a little bit of hypertext in college and I, I felt skeptical about it, but I also felt really intrigued by the how much how much attention it was requiring of the reader and how much involvement. So rather than kind of sitting there passively watching the story unfold in front of my eyes, I was having to create the story along with the writer and the text and and the the computer. So that involvement is, um, is, as I said, really interesting to me. But I, and I also think going a little farther back um, to the very beginning of the 20th century, Félix Fénéon's uh, novels in three lines from, I think, 1906. Um, Fénéon was a newspaper man in France who uh, would write entire stories in, in three sentences or three lines taken, kind of ripped from the headlines. And novel, of course, can be translated from the French also as news, you know, nouvelle. Um, but it's a great book. I think you're probably familiar with that book. I, yeah. I love that book yeah. actually. Yeah. And he was loved by everybody. He was, you know, friends with, he was editing Colette's husband. He was friends with Debussy and he was friends with, uh, um, Mallarmé and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other writers at the time. So mm-hmm. even though he didn't really write with his name, except in the newspaper, he, he was really seen in that way as a, as a, a great writer. In right. His own right. Right. And I love that book just to, to kind of dip into it. I mean, you had, you had mentioned sort of things that don't have to be read in the order that they're printed. That's my experience of that book. It, it's pages and pages and pages of these little snippets of, you know, Madame Pussy swallowed a bad fish period 
the rain came period she was no longer you know the all all these sort of tales of misfortune um but they're they're so compressed that the the reader i have to put a lot of my own imagination into that so so back to the idea of of combining and recombining and also that intersection with uh probabilities and mathematics why did you guys choose 64 cards versus say 52 cards, which would be a playing deck, or 78 cards, which would be a tarot deck. What was there about 64, if anything, that you landed on that as the number for the deck? Uh, well, it, it was just – that was an accident, I have to say. We we had way more images and, um, and, and captions, but then we started to – so th- this is how it worked. I, I need to talk about the process first to answer the question. Basically, there were images first and then uh, – at first, we thought, oh, maybe, Lenny, you could write captions following the images, after the images. But that was sort of like not working. It wasn't interesting enough. So we decided to work separately. So Lenny took a look at the images, looked at them, and sort of like got a sense of the mood and everything. And then we decided to find, and we're revealing like sort of a secret here, but it's, you know, it's a good secret to reveal, to find a book that would give Lenny sort of like constraints uh, that she could use to build her text around, and so I, I have this book by this um, Italian Italian American puppeteer, which I don't remember his name now, but it's a it's a great book and it talks about making making puppets and marionettes. It's very and technical. It's a manual it's very for te- how to make puppets. Almost technical, yeah, exactly. And in the mood of that of that book, even if it's a manual, it's very, I find it very lyrical. I think it has a lot in common with the kind of images I was making. So uh, we basically like selected together words, random words from this book, words that had like a sort of like a, a semantic uh, uh, um, uh, closeness to, to, to these images. And, and so the, the, the rule for Lenny was to, put, to write a sentence around each of these words. And the words were, for example, it could be swell or lumber, lumber or mankan or bloody bunny. You know, things like this. No, this one was probably, yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, what's interesting to me is that you came on 64 by accident because I assumed it came with some intention behind it. And I went and looked it up and it really is the most, it seems like the number most associated with combination and recombination. So this this is what I discovered. So there's 64 squares on a chessboard. Okay. There's 64 sexual positions in the Kama Sutra. There are 64 units in the genetic code that get recombined called codons. There's 64 hexagrams in the I Ching, which, of course, is another form of, of interplay with chance and recombination. So I was like, oh, this is this is apparently accidentally is is a tradition with this number for some reason that gets used in, in this uh, recombining methodology even in in biology yeah i'm i'm curious whether unconsciously or subconsciously you know i was thinking eight times eight eight times eight you know the the pleasure of that symmetry um and i also the number four is my favorite number so i like numbers that end in four um i wonder if that had something to do with it or yeah yeah well it's very cool to know all this the numbers of course and all those things um so but now to go back to the to the to the you know how, how text and images met, and then we started to combine them to see which text could go with which image, and we were a little doubtful and, you know, at first because we thought oh, maybe they're not going to work. We spread them all out, all sixty four cards out on our dining room table, and 
and then just looked and saw it. And you know, since these these captures were not written directly for these images, it was crazy. And one of the funny, funny, most fun things we have ever done, I think, to to see how they would actually fall into place almost magically, as if, well, you know, and and uh, and there was also a little bit of friction between text and image, which I think it's the key to make something I think interesting, you know, text image wise when the image it's too much of an illustration of the text or vice versa. It's a little boring. In this way, it was like a, almost as if they were touching each other for a moment and then going in different directions. And I thought that was like, and, and I think some, some comic effects come from that. Uh, and you had a more rigorous uh, standard for that. Cause sometimes I would look at one and, you know, Oh, that one goes well with that, you know, and he would say, no, it's too close. It's, it's, it's too illustrative. Mm. Well, I think as an illustrator, I'm always concerned with that because that's, it's always a risk when you do illustration, I think, to follow too closely the text, which, you know, I think some illustrators do. And, you know, I respect that, but I think my, I'm interested more in illustrators that try to like sort of like take a different way, you know, and, and bring you to a different place. It's like a, you know, almost as if in the text there are little doors that you open and you go into another room or something like that. In, in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Lainey Zumas and Luca Di Piero, the co-creators of A Wooden Leg, an illustrated novel in 64 cards. Let's talk a little bit about your illustrative philosophy and influences. Uh, the, we mentioned tarot, and, and there are some cards that sort of hearken to tarot in the sense that there seem to be these celestial bodies that have faces that are come, looking down, but there's also the marionette quality of and childlike quality of the images and yet uh, uh, even with the childlikeness there's sexual suggestiveness and scatological humor and a sort of uh, creepiness to some of the cards too i'd say is is there a tradition that that um you're t- you're referring to uh, that has influenced you and and what is the effect that you you're going with co- with combining a lot of elements that people wouldn't necessarily put together in the same image. Well, I definitely there are traditions, I would say, plural. Uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of different influences. And I would say just randomly one that I really uh, – one author that I really love, he's, he's, a, he's an artist. Uh, I think he died 20 or 30 years ago, Roland Topor, T-O-P-O-R. And he was also a writer. Uh, he wrote uh, The Tenant. I think Roman Polanski made a movie out of, of that book. And uh, he had a very strange, often scatological, but often melancholy humor. And uh, I, 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 in his work, I see different, different moods uh, uh, mixing together, like uh, humor, but also sadness. And in general, I've been always attracted you know, to... To different styles, different moods, you know, in one, in one, in, in one, in one drawing, one illustration. Like, you, I think you can be funny and, and sad at the same time, and generally that's what you know attracts me. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about you know different influences, but I think it, there's so you know there's so many so mixed that sometimes it's hard to like you know name them all. But definitely Topor is one of the, the, the first names I, I can think of, and of course the traditional marionettes and you know the, the poopy. Ipupi, you know, it's a, they're Sicilian uh, marionettes. That's very strong. There's, there's, the, the creepiness I think comes from 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 there because they're, they're you know, all, all these things happen to them. They're decapitated or whatever, and but their their expression is always the same. And I I, I kind yeah. of love that sort of like, uh, you know, mask of of, of resignation almost, and and. Um, 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned those those faces because to me those it, it's almost like a religious element. Almost like I'm not a, I'm not religious, but I'm interested in in religious iconography, and that sort of comes from I think comes from like religious painting. You know, these, these angels and and but it, it's obviously re- reduced to the to the minimum in the, in this in this. But I think it comes from from there. Sort of like well, I've read in other interviews that you you cite Pasolini as an influence and or at least an inspiration, and and I think of his his movie gospel mm-hmm. according to saint matthew he's an atheist he's a communist he's but he's making this incredible and innovative film about the life of jesus only using his words but somehow making him seem so unfamiliar to us at the same time totally it's and, interesting and also all the all the bodily functions and the, that, that you that you mentioned before that, that i think that there's definitely a, a tradition of i think italian art and literature and, and poetry even Dante, there's a lot of scatological things in Dante that I think goes through Pasolini. You know, if you see the trilogy of life, it's full of that and, and his last movie too. And I think that, you know, in a strange way, comes into the illustration too, definitely. Mm. Um, so, so Lainey, um, you have a, a history prior to coming to to writing in, in recombined cards in your um, short stories and in your novel around recombining. The thing that comes to, to mind most immediately is waste no time if this method fails, which is a story, but is also the sentences are sort of not entirely connected to the sentences on either side of themselves and can be interchanged. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're inviting that interchangeability, but I would be curious to hear how you see the, the wooden leg enterprise, uh, dovetailing with some of the other things you've written that are just text. Mm -hmm. Well, that story, Waste No Time If This Method Fails, was also written with a very particular constraint in mind. Um, I gave myself the limitation of every sentence either having, having to begin with either he or I. And so within that, it was really you know, really specific, but I felt I could kind of go anywhere. And so the way I generated that story was just making lists and claims and statements. And I was not thinking about their order and the order that they appear in, in the book, um, is, is itself a bit random. I mean, not entirely random. I, I kind of like played around with many different combinations and started to notice, um, where motifs were appearing and not wanting to repeat things too close together. But that really came after it was, um, working within the constraint allowed me to, to simply focus on these nodes or modules. It's a really modular story. And I like working that way because I'm not, um, feeling or chafing at the obligation to, to answer the question, then what happened? You know, it's more about bearing down on a moment or an image or a piece of language and, then releasing it and and seeing where where it can go, but it's it's not obliged to answer that question. And similarly with this project, um, I can say, I can write vinegar trembled along the footlights, and I don't have to then say what happened to that vinegar or what happened to those footlights. We can swerve at, to a different image. And in your novel, the listeners you have you have characters that have synesthesia where they're seeing text is color or, or sound is color. Do you see that, that fascination with that blending of, of different sensations as, do you see a wooden leg as an extension of, of your fascination with synesthesia is what I want to say. Oh, that's a good question. I hadn't thought of it that way before. I mean, certainly one of the interesting things about synesthesia in, in language. I mean, as, as you said, in my novel, there are a couple characters who have that neurological condition, but it's also about 
what we can do in language when we're refusing to obey, you know, if it's, if there's a visual marker that is not described in the visual field, then it's, it's a way to resist that, um, sort of convention. And I think that what Luca was talking about earlier about the friction between text and image is also about resistance a little bit saying, you know, this meaning is not closed. This is this claim or this statement or this description isn't necessarily telling the whole story. And much as if I'm describing sound through image or, or image through sound, it, it's a, it's a perforation of sorts and things are leaking into, but you know, from one category to another and, and leakage is, has long been um, really compelling to me. Uh, things that don't stay where they're supposed to. Do you have some, some lines or captions you'd like to read from a wooden like? Sure. I know it's hard for us to be able to describe the images that go with them in, in, a, in a way that's going to translate. But. I know. I wish, I wish Luca's images could, could somehow travel over the airwaves wow. because they're really so amazing. Maybe to- some listeners with synesthesia will hear your words and yeah. be seeing colors, though. <laughs> or you can just buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they consulted the mannequin's pelvis, where lay a smooth genital bulb. And a blood bunny looking to fasten itself. He trimmed his philtrum with care. The mannequin said, ovaries of brass on that girl. A pinch, a thimble, are you touching cloth? Plump hood trimmed with fur of buffy tufted marmoset. The dapperling had strong jaws and a ready root. The rope said, I am the weed of the palaces. So when readers who are expecting the fictive spell and the ability to immerse in a continuous narrative and sort of disappear into, into a dimensionalized world encounter work like this that invites an arbitrariness into the, into the order and also more of a fragmentation – uh, of experience and, and potentially also invites the reader to work a little bit to to co-create the meaning and in, in your case with co-creators it's not it's often not just met with bewilderment by some people but sometimes with hostility and, and yes. i and i think about the uh jonathan franz in mr difficult article when he wrote about gaddis's jr that ben marcus then responded to but i would also think just more in general not even in in critical circles that some people might listen to fragmented sentences like this and go, what is this? Is this, is this really a novel? Is this, how do I enter it? What am I supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. Can you, can you talk about the reception of a wooden leg and, uh, and how you've, you felt like the interface with people who might not be familiar with this sort of work, um, has how you've dealt with that? Sure. Well, your question brings to mind a talk I gave um, a couple months ago um, at a, a different university, and I was presenting. I was talking a little bit about the the wooden leg project um, in the the larger con- context of constraint based writing, and I read a few and and sort of was emphasizing the importance of the reader's uh, involvement and, and active participation and. I heard a couple of snickers and, and, and whisperings and a woman at the back who was actually a a very, um, eminent 
persona at this university said, what's the difference between what you're doing and the fact that if a monkey types long enough, he'll type out James Joyce's Ulysses. And that's just, that is a bewildering question to me that they would even, that a professor would even think that particularly. Yeah. And and, offensive too. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I said, are you asking me how I am different from a monkey typing? And she said, and she backed off a little at that point, but she said, you know, what you're describing is, is not necessarily a work of literature. And, um, and I think she, and, and there are probably many others who would share this, um, was expressing a lot of anxiety, I think about borders, um, and labels and what, what can be considered literature and what cannot and, and, or what, what is narrative. And while I happen to find those questions really exciting, I think they're not terribly exciting for some people. They're annoying. They're, they're, uh, scary. Um, and it's that question of like, well, what are, you know, why don't we all just write Twitter tweets and call that a novel, you know? Um, so there's that sort of reactionary position, but, but, but I think underneath the reactionary kind of stance is some very real and, and interesting worry, you know, about how we tell stories and how we make stories. And so I don't think I necessarily had a a good answer for her and maybe I would never, you know, this project would never convert someone um, like her. But so, but I think for people who do want to think about all the different kinds of things that, that story can be, this project um, might not need that kind of explanation. Would be interesting if if you had you talk about the uneasiness of not having a good label. If this would been had been called poetry, and someone was able to shift their mind into thinking of the the sonic qualities of the sentences versus the narrative aspects, right. maybe they would have been able to hear it differently. But then they would still be unnerved by the fact that it doesn't have a set a order of the lines, which would bring us back to that hundred million billion poem by Cano. Right. The idea of you sort of frustrating the 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 need or desire for an order. Right. And that, and, and, and a poem that arguably can never be written even because it's so big, you know, that right. it, we can only deal with the idea of it or the potential for it, but we can never really see the thing itself. Yeah. And, you know, one, you know, if one prefers, one could see these as a collection of 64 st- short stories. It's it, that that's okay too. I, I think sometimes co- actually collections of short stories could be seen as novels. Uh, I'm thinking, uh, for example, uh, Hoover Shelby Jr. wrote this book called, I think, Song of the Silent Snow or Chant of the Silent Snow. I don't remember. And basically, they're short stories. But in each story, the character is always the same and his name is always uh, Harry. And they share so much. Just The narrative is not cons- you know, consequential and it's considered a collection of short stories, but I read that as a novel, for example. So sometimes the, the line can be you know, blurry. But, in, you know... Um, if, if I can uh, say one thing about what you asked before, uh, I have a friend and she's, you know, a, um, a woman who's interested in a lot of things, but she's definitely not interested in experimental literature or experimental art. And she's a friend of mine. So once we had coffee and I, you know, I, I brought this, this, uh, this project, I wouldn't like this little deck of cards to her. And she looked at it. She flipped through each image and made me a little nervous because she was silent all the time. And I was like, she's not going to like this <laughs> for sure. And at the end, you know, I don't. I don't think she was interested in the combinatorial nature of the project so much, but she she was laughing and she was like, "This is really funny," 
And so I think, you know, there's living lev- there are different levels also of, of, um, of uh, enjoyment of, of this. I think ultimately, even if you don't accept the fact that it's a novel, it's okay. You know, maybe just enjoy each piece by itself and it's probably going to probably make you laugh a few times. Oh, it definitely. Now sometimes I'm trying to sell the product, so. but I, no, I, seriously, it, it makes me laugh. That's what I'm saying. It made me laugh a okay. lot. I mean, there's some. Thank you, Lenny. Yeah, actually, <laughs> you uh, you strike on these cards that fi- have this particular resonance that catches you off guard, and it's it is really a delightful read. Um, well, let's talk a little bit more about the collaborative process because you said you laid them all out you'd worked separately some and then you had to decide how to pair them together and i know in in the Olympian tradition and in people who do constraint-based writing co- co-writing is really common where yeah. it isn't really common in literary fiction so you see it in genre fiction like sci-fi fantasy detective and you see it in Olympian work and i know that even when people are doing individual work that is constraint-based Part of the enterprise is the displacement of the ego, not the yeah. obliteration of it, but the mo- moving of the ego to the side. So the in- invitation of chance, the in- invitation of the participation of the reader. Um, but co-writing also obviously very naturally pushes two egos to the side or maybe against each other, depending on that. How how easy was was the decision-making process for the two of you in, 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 in putting – a specific text to a specific image. Did, I mean, was it a contentious process or, or was it something that came with a certain sense of ease? I think it came st- like oddly with a certain sense of ease. It, I, I feel like almost as if each caption had, well, th- this sounds a little, you know, maybe pretentious, but I, I feel like almost like each caption chose its own illustration. It, they, they just fell into place. Uh, and when we, I, I think we could have not selected a different. Um, we could have, we could have chosen so many different sequences, but I think the pairing of each illustration, which it text, is, is sort of like what worked best. I think we they, they were like sort of made for each other in a strange way. I think it's you know it's it's a retro retroactive sort of like process. You know, while you once you decide it, that's that's the right one, you there cannot were, imagine a second choice. But there were sorry. a couple of times, as I mentioned before, where I said, "Oh, just throw that one there," and, and Luca said, "Well." I think we can do better. You know, I, I think you actually use that term, yeah. which I like. And and to me, one of the many pleasures of collaborating with him is I respect and love his work so much that um, it, it builds a kind of trust of, you know, I'm not worried about his discernment or his judgment because of um, how brilliant I think his artwork is. And so I can just sort of say, all right, I can go with that even if, it, it wasn't my first choice. I'm going to trust his choice and hopefully vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was, it was to me, I, I, it was a lot of fun. It was probably the, the most fun thing I've done, honestly, in collaboration wise. I'm, I'm, I'm making a book right now. It's an illustrations with, with another writer and it's not nearly as fun. It's, you know, it's a lot more work, but it's not nearly as much fun as the one I made with Lenny. Um, and also, I have to say, since you, you know, you, you had so much, so many nice words for me, I have to say, it was reading your text. It was, it was incredible to me when I read all the captions. Like this is like incredible. It's like, like some of your best work. And also, like it brought, I think it brought the images to a to a completely different level. It made them like you know have more meaning and like or reverted their meaning. You know, sometimes there were some drawings that had a certain mood. There was a certain mood to them, and Lenny completely changed that. And you know that that's that, that was that was great to see. And as a side note, or it's not really side; it's pretty central. Another constraint we had on 
this project was that we have um, an 18 month old son who was even younger when we were working on this. And the, 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 the time suck of living, you know, the, the fact that when you're living with a, a little baby, I might've had five minutes and no more to, to write one of these. And it was kind of a relief to be working on a project that I could just spend five minutes and complete um, one of the modules rather than, Oh, I only wrote a sentence like that sucks. I still have the rest of the novel to write. And you know, it's interesting because I think this has been said many times, but I, I, I experienced it uh, for the first time. Probably I, I feel like, you know, these, these, all these constraints that we had, Gave me an, an incredible sense of freedom. In fact, I felt this 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 project was very freeing and and sort of like almost like improvisational, which is strange because we had all these rules and things. And but I feel you know that's I think that's the the good thing about constraint is like that's the real freedom. In fact, you know when you, your creativity can like sort of like work within certain like pattern and like and and see what you can do in that little space. And it, it, you have to think more. I feel like you know and so like it, it, there's some almost like a, a strange adrenaline to it. I, I feel like. Yeah. In case you just tune in, we're talking today to Lainey Zumas and Luca Di Piero about their novel in 64 cards, A Wooden Leg. So, Luca, you just mentioned the the sense of freedom with doing work that has limitations. And, and maybe Lainey can speak to uh, how that the constraint-based movement was actually founded around this idea that, that it actually is limitations that uh, inspire uh, creativity and l- liberates uh, creativity. Yeah, I mean, if a lot of the the kind of manifestos and and essays of Ulipian writers and others who kind of inherited their interest and constraints um, do speak directly to this the sensation of release or liberation or um, kind of freedom to do things. Rather, it's it's not it's a different kind of freedom. It's not freedom from limitations. It's freedom to investigate, explore, um, kind of force yourself into a way of thinking that you wouldn't have, have arrived at without the constraint. And, and that to me, if, if we're speaking concrete, because it can get kind of abstract and theoretical, but at the, at a very logistical and kind of concrete level, if you are writing from a prompt or if you are given uh, a set of parameters that you have to work within, it actually is going to ask your brain to do something a little different from what it's used to doing. And, and in that, that I think therein lies the great value of it. And even, and uh, many Olympians and other constraint-based writers are actually not as interested in the product, um, that the, the product itself, the writing that comes from this process does not need to be the most brilliant thing ever made, but the, the process and the fact that kind of different neural pathways in your brain are, are being dug and, um, and discovered that in itself is is the great value. But there's also some great examples of amazing products. So like I would think of Ulysses, for instance, like we could think of James Joyce giving himself the constraint. How can I do the Odyssey, a multi-year journey in, in, one, in one day told by someone who never leaves their town? So that, I mean, that, sure. that could be obviously a constraint-based, considered a constraint-based work. It could. And I like the, that example because often when we talk about constraints, it's, you know, perex avoid a, a novel written without the use of the letter E. Um, it, it's a little bit more about form and style than, um, than actually looking at the content. I'll, I mean, if we can extricate any of those from, from the others, but um, to say, yeah, one, one day... In, in Dublin, 
you know, it, it's just going to be one day, but that day is going to contain it, the history of civilization basically. And, you know, all these different stylistic registers. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked about it before, but I think the, the the role of the reader is really central here in the sense there's, you know, a kind of reader that wants to be taken by hand and shown everything and, and think, you know, and, and sort of considers books or, or comics or art, something static, like an object to enjoy that is right just there. And then there's another reader who sort of like wants to do something with the text or with the image and, and sort of like, and sometimes even go back to imagine to be the writer or, or the artist and sort of like do that, that itinerary sort of like, and maybe in a different way. I feel like there's a lot of the pleasures of looking at art or reading, in my opinion, for me at least, come from from going backwards, almost at the origin of the book or, or, or the piece of artwork and sort of like see how it was made in a way, you know? I don't know, there's a sort of like... Um, you know, traveling almost, uh, you know, in, in time and backwards and then forward again. So. Yeah, no, I, I meant to bring this quote by Lydia Davis and I forgot. I'm really um, bummed that I did because she talks about what you gain and lose by writing in, in fragments and in, in what you lose in sort of that immersive, fictive spell by creating a fragment and then having a, a suggestive absence is you you end up foregrounding the process of how the the actual art was created. So the reader, as you said, Luca, participates in in viewing the process of the creation in the final product, and it also um, reveals the consciousness of both the reader and the writer, mm. which I think is really fa- according to Lydia Davis. Mm-hmm. But it's it, that really resonates with what I was what I was reading and intending to read on the air, but but failed. So one of the things I wanted to ask also, Luca, was about illustration. You, you've said in, in um, previous interviews that it's considered a minor art. Mm-hmm. And there's something you like about it's being a minor art that has sort of an ambiguous place within the art world. Yeah. And I wonder if that is somehow related to what you were just speaking about around the reader participating in, in, in the origins of the work. But could you speak a little bit about the fascination with illustration versus a, another way of sure. making images? Sure. Yeah, illustration is not a, a pure art in the sense that it's sort of like, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, uh, concerned with, it's, it's concerned with, it, it's concerned with storytelling. And so I feel like there is sort of like a function to it. Well, you know, art is this, this, this idea that art has to be pure and sort of, you know, and, uh, but my, my experience of, of illustration being, being you know, uh, sort of considered a minor art has been sort of like, you know, with me forever in the sense that whenever I, I talk to people that do another kind of art, let's say conceptual art or they're painters, and I, I talk about what I do, there's always a little bit of uh, that sense of, oh, okay, you're, you're, you're just, you know, illustrating some, somebody else's work. Well, you know, and, and it is, I, I think that there's so many cliches that, uh, you know, uh, we, we, can, we can find in, in this, like the idea of, you know, originality, the idea that, you know, working on somebody else's work, it's for some reason should be like less original than working, with, you know. So there's a lot of, uh, I think, um, ideas about art that probably come from from the, the, the romantics, probably you know, sort of like idea of genius, of expression, of originality, and and thing. But I, I like the idea of, of of illustration being sort of like um, really impure. So being concerned with storytelling, being concerned with dealing with another, with a text often, and 
and I feel like that that's that's the way that illustration works better. I feel like it, it sort of like draws it like it, it seems to follow something like you know a text or 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 a caption, and instead it 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 sort of derails you, brings you somewhere else. So it's I, I feel like it's a more subtle thing that that illustration does than many people think. And of course, there are illustrators that just try to be as close to the text as possible, but. Even in that case, there's always something that is a little different. For example, one of the things that I always found very interesting in illustration is is the gender. Like often, especially in, in children's illustrations, like little boys look like girls and girls look like boys. There's like this strange ambiguity to it that it's not – sometimes it's not intentional, but it really re- resonates in me. And I find it like in- incredibly fascinating. Mm. And, you know, and I feel like gender is one of the – you know, one of the – I think it, it, to work with gender is a very interesting thing. If you're an artist, I feel like it's one of the you, you sort of like step out of your gender and like sort of like have a, a different kind of position, like more like floating almost like above gender in a way. And I think illustration can do that sometimes unintentionally. I don't know if I answered. No, that's a good <laughs> answer. And, and this idea of wedding uh, in illustration, how the image is wedded to a text, it sort of also points back to the origins of texts themselves, since all language used to be pictorial. Yeah. Which brings us back to that the enterprise we talked about at the beginning by Calvino, the Castle of Cross Destinies, which sort of pushes us to see how when we speak, we're actually hearkening back to when all of the letters were were actually images. And you have one card that I think hearkens to that. It's I applaud the analphabets among you. And analphabets can mean illiterates and it also can mean pictorial languages. And so in a, in a strange way, it feels like a wooden leg is an analphabet, mm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's another form of image text, like all languages were and we've forgotten. Does that, right. does that resonate with, yeah. you, with the two of you? Yeah. Or? yeah. I, and mean, I love the, that, you, that you found that, that card. I mean, it's great. That, yeah. That, 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 you know. yeah. And, and, and that also brings – there's a kind of issue of translation um, to the word analphabet. Uh, uh, sometimes Luca, when, in speaking English, is, um, when he – I mean, he's – an amazing speaker of English. He's fluent, but he also sometimes translates an Italian word. There's like a false cognate in English or, and, and he'll, if he was talking about someone who couldn't read, he would say an alphabet or he's an alphabetic rather than he's illiterate. And one of my sort of pleasures, um, in listening to him speak is picking up on those, uh, really particular kind of literal translations from one language to another that, um, they're not translating into the, the correct usage, but they're still kind of correct and beautiful in their own way. And so that particular word, which is sort of could be not even mistranslated, but awkwardly translated. Um, I love thinking about those kinds of words and, and how even within English, we can translate from one sort of register of language to another. Um, so, so, and, and translating something from, you know, the, the origin of translate, you know, the carrying across or bringing into a new place, um, how that happens back and forth between image and text is also very cool. The, the importing and exporting a meaning. Yeah. I think that, that, um, Italian lens on English or any languages way of making the syntax different and, and maybe unusual word choices yeah. would be a real advantage in this enterprise. Yeah. There's actually a, since you mentioned Keno before, there's a, there's a great book by Keno. I think it's a minor, but it, I, I think it's like, it, it's, it's incredibly funny. It's called the diary of Sally Mara. And so he imagines this little girl who's Irish, who 
starts to learn French and she writes her diary in French. So it's obviously a, a, very, a French full of mistakes. And it's so funny. Just Kino uses all the possible mistakes you can do in speaking in a language that is not your own, things that I've done probably during this interview like all the time. <laughs> And it, and it makes it into a gen- generative thing. So it generates, uh, you know, f- something, things that, that happen in, in language. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's very good. It's, yeah, it's called the Diary of Selimar. Oh, that sounds great. Was, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of your touchstone books. What are, what are influences, uh, both images and text? What are some of the ones that uh, you would point listeners to? They're fascinated by this conversation. They want to read a wooden leg, but also want to sort of flesh out their, uh, their experience. Um, something that's popping to mind that is, is very, very, very different from this project, but, um, that I often think about in, in the interaction between image and text is WG Sebald's work, um, which in itself is very hybrid work. It, it, it could be lyric essay meets fiction meets autobiography meets historical investigation. And he, peppers his, you know, he has these long, dense blocks of, of text, doesn't use many paragraph breaks, but, um, he inserts images, usually photographs, but sometimes, uh, hand drawings into his text and they work in really strange, subtle ways because, uh, you know, Luca was talking before about illust, you know, things that are meant to illustrate something, but don't match them exactly. And Sabal, uh, often picks images that seem to be directly corresponding to what he's talking about, but aren't always. And, and it, it's almost a little, uh, invitation to the reader to say, huh, what is this image doing? You know, the image starts to have a life of its own. It's not, a, it, it's not in this only in the service of the text. Um, and it's also something that I think makes his, his work inviting and surprising. Um, and that doesn't happen often in kind of quote, so-called, you know, high literature, you know, literary fiction or, or literary, uh, lyric essays often, you know, if you think of an illustrated text, it, it, it has its own little ghetto, so to speak. Um, but Sebald kind of doesn't care about those things. Um, so that's, that's one I would think of. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to choose a, a book of images since it's just a, a literature. And I, I, I was thinking actually about it right now and, and that it could be a progenitor of, of this project. In fact, a, a much illustrious progenitor. But uh, it's um, a, a book by Max Ernst, the, the painter, the surrealist painter. It's called, I'm going to butcher French, Une semaine de bonté, A Week of Goodness. And it's a novel, and uh, that's challenging too because a lot of people wouldn't think that's a novel, made of images and some, some captions and some words and in different chapters. And all the images are basically collages from newspaper uh, images. So it's, you know, they're like, it's like this, is this sort of like found image quality and all the characters look like very, very, not very expressive. And, but it's, 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 and of course they're, they're put together in a very surrealist way. So there are people with, um, you know, hawks heads or horses with people's heads and so on. But it's, uh, there, there's definitely like a progression to it. And once you, you 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 start to enter that world. You realize that there is a, a coherence. Uh, there, there there is. I mean, it is actually a novel. You, you you start to notice that there are returning elements, and I think maybe ultimately that's what I personally find uh, 
that is, I, I think it's it's the element that makes a novel a novel. It's not so much length or it's elements that recur that come back, and that that that's what to me makes it. And and you know, Monsieur de Monte has that, and it's also extremely funny and and, and inspirational. It can lead to very strange places. So, another one I would add a more recent book is one by Leanne Shapton, uh, and I'm not going to remember the title, but it's in the form of an auction catalog, and what it's narrating is the the rise and fall of a romantic relationship um via a catalog of all the things that the after the breakup these two people are selling and so it has it's it's mostly image actually on the page um with some captions and explanations of you know here's the napkin from the restaurant where they had their second date um and or it's a photograph of an object or um and it's a really pleasurable book because it, it, it enables a, a almost kind of a quick skimming read, but then you can kind of bear down on, a, on an object and say, Oh, why is this, why was this important to them? And, and it's also a mystery story. You know, why did this relationship fall apart? Mm, that sounds fascinating. Can I add a, a, another one? And yeah, then, of course. <laughs> uh, this is kind of a classic, but I think it's, it's, it's incredible in, in the sense of uh, what, it, what it does to, to you as a reader. It's a book by Saul Steinberg, the, 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 the New Yorker illustrator, and he, he, he called himself, it, it's very interesting, a, a writer who draws instead of writing. And uh, it's called The Discovery of America. And it's a collection of drawings. Some are very famous, like the view of New York and then the world behind it. But what's interesting is like the drawings. So they're mute. But each drawing is basically – it's almost like an essay about something. So there's so much in just a few lines. And, uh, you know, it's the power of, I think, of, of you know, images. And, and it, it shows that, you know, you can be smart and literary even by just drawing something. And, you know, it's not, you know, only painting, only, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, before before we end today, can you talk a little bit about the art collective, the walk that put out a wooden leg, and also your art scene, dusting? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, the art collective is it's very simple. It's just one guy, Isidoro Sevilla, is his name. It's a Spanish Spanish man who's in love with, I think, very strange things, and uh, so that's why he picked us probably. And he decided to make in his own kitchen like booklets of artists and writers that he that he likes and also cds i know he started to put out some cds uh so there it, the idea is more i think he's more interested in the idea of sharing things than publishing because these these objects are very carefully made and i think you know there's a certain beauty to them the paper and the choice but also they're very limited Editions, so I think he prints like a hundred or fifty of, of each. So he doesn't want to reach a really wide audience, and I, I can I can appreciate that. Not in the sense that you know you have to be, uh, you know, a snob or something, but in the sense you know he knows that there's not so many people interested in that, and he just wants to reach those, and and that's it. He's not interested in like a, a very wide. Um, and and would, if someone's wanting to be one of those people to get a wooden leg, would they go to his website? Yeah, yes, I forgot. Yeah, the website is is. Uh, this is called the walk. Dot wordpress dot com. This is called the walk. Yes, I think it's a reference to a song by The Cure. I, I, oh, I interesting. Uh, yeah, this so is called a, the walk. Vo- Robert Walzer story too. Yeah, there's a Robert Walzer story called The Walk. The Spaziergang. Uh, so that's that's his website, and there's I think there's interesting things coming up and. Oh yeah, you asked me about this thing. Yeah, this thing is sort of like basically just a container for my drawings and for my images. But I sort of like approach it in the way that each time I want to do something different. So if you look at the first thing and at the latest one, the one I made with Lenny, 
They're really different projects. I mean, you can see there's the same hand behind it, but they're really different. So it's, it's sort of like a way to challenge myself to do something that is a relatively short form because they're not, you know, well, the, the little one is a novel, yes, but, you know, it's still like a, like a smaller project that I can sort of, it's almost like a, a laboratory for my, for my work. And uh, I, you know, I, I was just putting it out myself and then I think now the walk picked it up so they're, they're going to print it. And, and they're all available only through the website. It's it's a kind of a radical choice, but you know I think. And then uh, you have an event coming up in Portland. Yes, I, I'm I'm very glad because I've been living in Portland for three for three years, and you know uh, the birth of my son sort of like made me not be so much in touch with the art scene. But I I, I have a screening of my of my animated films of all my no my my latest animated films at the Clinton Theater. It's going to be on July 3rd at 7 p.m. And the cool thing is that the the band, the Italian band that does all the soundtracks for my films, Father Murphy, they're coming just to Portland. They're flying from Los Angeles just to Portland to, to do a, a live soundtrack, which oh. is going to be probably a lot of fun. That hopefully. sounds great. There will be trumpets. And there will be trumpets and horns, yes. <laughs> and Lainey, um, maybe just to wrap up the show, what is what are you working on now? I'm working on a novel um, that's really messy and in pieces right now and I'm in that wonderful private kind of early stage where I can just I'm, I'm making messes basically um, so maybe in about a year they're going to start congealing and cohering into something. Well it's great having you both on between the covers today. Thank you so much Thank David. you so much for inviting us. We were talking today with Lainey Zumas and Luca De Piero, the co-creators of A Wooden Leg, an illustrated novel in 64 Cards. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. 